When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Animal Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Callie Smith, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Benjamin Schultz-Figueroa about his new book, The Celluloid Specimen, Moving Image Research into Animal Life. This book is structured around animal research films created by 20th century behaviorist Robert Yerkes, Neil Miller, and B.F. Skinner. Dr. Schultz-Figueroa proposes that we consider animal research films, which he describes as celluloid specimens, as political texts that continue to impact social policies and humans' relationship with animals. As a warning to listeners, this episode will include discussion of harm done to humans and animals. So Benjamin, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Um, So There's so much that I'm looking forward to talking about with you today, but I'm really curious if you can take us back to the moment or maybe a series of moments that really got you started down this path of the celluloid specimen. Sure, happy to. Um, So I was was in uh, a program at UC Santa Cruz. Um, This is based on my dissertation and I was doing a a lot of critical animal studies theoretical readings and i had a background though in documentary filmmaking a little bit like experimental documentary filmmaking and one of the things that that practice really taught me was that you needed an object that could push back at your assumptions and that could um that could in its complexity in its details in its depth uh, say something beyond what you intended to say. And so I was reading all of this work about animals as political subjects. And I wanted a case history to consider that could give me that kind of pushback. And that's when I started looking into these, these films. And the behaviorist films were really perfect for that because they're thinking of their research and their research with animals as political 
texts themselves. So they already are having those kinds of conversations. And they're um, creating these films in order for them to be applicable to the political sphere and the public sphere. So that was exciting to me. And when I started looking, I was indeed confounded by what I found because um, people like Robert Yerkes don't have a, 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 or at least to me at that time, did not have a coherent politics. Yerkes is uh, on the one hand incredibly passionate and and empathetic when it comes to his primates and yet at the other hand he's also a eugenicist and he promoted some of the most damaging um, policies within the eugenics movement so right at the face of it i i i was confronted with this kind of seeming contradiction i think that by the end of the book i've developed enough of a a methodology for analyzing those kinds of complexities to understand where Yerkes' politics lies. And actually, I think his empathy for animals is, is at the heart of his eugenicist politics. But at the beginning, I was confounded by it. <laughs> um, and, and, and as with many of the other um, uh, scientists in the book, scientist filmmakers. So it really... It was a it was an opportunity for me to put a lot of these conceptual ideas to the test and see what happens um, and and try to develop a more complicated and more thorough, more rigorous theoretical approach in dialogue with those objects. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And I know, uh, so Robert Yerkes in p- uh, particular, I first heard of him and I'm sure many others uh, from his IQ tests um, that you write, that you provide a nice summary of. Um, and I guess this might be a great moment since you sort of opened the door to it. His test, um, the development of that and the the implementation of it, I think you said for like 1.5 million um soldiers or like incoming soldiers was happening around the same time as he was developing basically what we now call like primatology um so can you say a little bit more about these like two world lines and and maybe where they intersect in his career absolutely so yeah yurkis is really um the founding father of primatology especially laboratory primatology in the united states he established uh, one of the first uh, or the first lab, primate lab uh, in the U.S. And but he was also a major figure within um, psychology at large and applied psychology. And so he developed the World War One Army IQ tests uh, to to basically place new recruits within the hierarchy of the army. Now, um, these tests were applied really haphazardly in some cases, but also were found later on to be um, incredibly biased in their uh, in their rankings. Um, so, but more to your question, the 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 approach to primates and the approach to IQ testing all. Sp- brings from a kind of common theoretical ground for Yerkes, which is this belief that uh, different groups of 
people, different species, uh, and perhaps different genders, that difference in general has a kind of unified sensorium or way of experiencing the world that can be brought out through testing and experiments and empathy. Um, and so through this, this kind of apparatus, whether it's the, the IQ tests or later his films uh, of primates, he believes that each individual, class of individuals, class of species has its own worldview or world perspective that can be measured and tested and inhabited through these different apparatus and then put to work within a structure uh, that that ranks them and puts each piece in its place. Now, obviously, this is becomes really, really troubling when you're talking about animals, but also when you're talking about people and race. Um, so Yerke's World War One uh, exams were used to justify some really draconian uh, immigration policies because according to the tests, um, black people scored much lower, uh, Eastern Europeans and Jews scored much lower. And so there was this kind of notion that there was su such a thing as a Eastern European mind or a black mind that was being measured and kind of um, uh, holistically described by these tests and that then that mind could be best put to use in different places in society. Um, again, he has a similar conversation around primates too. And so there's, you know, there's notions of a, a kind of gender essentialism, like, okay, this is what the male, this is how we can distinguish male primates from female primates. They have this sort of essential worldview that we can sort of uh, excavate with film and the, the empathetic capacities of film. Um, and there's also this kind of vision in his films of like putting primates to work. <laughs> and there's even, you know, there's a kind of fantasy surrounding his, his primatology that like, oh, well, maybe gorillas and chimpanzees will become the next laborers uh, and become the next uh, workers. And so there's a kind of um, image that if we could fully understand how these uh, primates interact with the world, we could make them part of the economic system uh, and hierarchy, which is sort of bizarre and interesting. And in the book, you do a great job. I think you uh, uh, cite a couple of sources, maybe from the 1920s, that was like, if if the ape can think, it can work. Or what would be, you know, should we have some sort of religious outreach for apes? You know, like, do we need missionaries for <laughs> for ape communities? Um, so it really, and this idea of fantasy kind of comes up in each of the sections as well in really fascinating ways, because we think of this as, you know, science and, and these different behavioralists are trying to use these experiments to really find a common language and legitimize what they're doing. Um, but I think at different points, you do a great job of showing how it's part of this kind of greater fantasy and the way it intersects with colonialism and racism and, and other types of um, uh, fantasies that, that we can touch on later. I want to back up a little bit and talk about uh, one particular animal figure that, that you 
focused on in the book and you book in the, the text with it and that's Mona. Um, and I think her story is is kind of an interesting access point for what you're saying about Yerkes. Uh, you write how she was born in Sierra Leone. She then became a pet of a Cuban socialite. Um, and then she was brought to Florida or I, I, I'm not quite sure, but she ends up here in Yerkes lab. Um, so that's automatically three really interesting and distinct, you know, political spheres that her life has traveled through. And so maybe we can use her as a way to talk about what a celluloid specimen is and how you figure that. Um, you write about the film of her is archived with body parts of hers. Um, so tell us a little bit about celluloid specimens. Absolutely. Yeah. So the book begins with a description of Mona and uh, her place in the Yerkes laboratory archives. Um, and she is kind of preserved in this laboratory uh, through her body parts, which she was um, dissected after her death and, and body parts are saved within the laboratory. Um, and then Alongside the body parts are films that are treated um, almost like they are parts of her body. Uh, and so in that way, I, I thought this was a very evocative way of thinking about what uh, a film of an animal, especially a research film of an animal is, um, because it's both a material object and a remain a, the the remains of a living being and yet it also is part of the infrastructure of the laboratory itself and and a sign it it, it uh bears witness to that history of you know mona's um transportation um from sierra leone to cuba to Florida, I believe it was Florida, although it might have also been the Yale campus. I'm not sure which. I'd have to go back and check. But again, you you see there um, in her story these overlapping um, systems of power, colonial systems of power, scientific systems of power and control <clears throat> that all are determining her life and and the final form that uh, the films will take. Um, you know, the, the interests of the scientists are literally written into her body uh, through the creation of these films and these moments and these experiments. So to me, this is, the celluloid specimen is an invitation for us to think uh, on, on multiple levels about these films as material objects, as traces of individual lives, as forms of political rhetoric, and as a kind of institutional uh, image making or, or meaning making. Um, and, and seeing how all of those interact with one another and produce what you see on screen um, is really the method that I'm advocating for in the book overall. Yeah, you do such a great job of outlining that. And I think just to give listeners a sense of uh, scope, you know, uh, Mona died in, I think, 1942 or 1940s. Um, so at this point, and you even mentioned how uh, 
those films are currently degrading or they're really fragile. So is there any kind of, I'm really curious at this moment about the archive, like are there efforts to digitize it? Um, what will happen to her body parts? I mean, how much longer will they be, I guess, relevant or useful? Are they still used in research? I'm just so curious about this, this old, um, at this point now, arc artifact. Yeah, so <clears throat> Mona is, um, the, the films of Mona are housed at the Yerkes Laboratory. The Yerkes Laboratory is um, not particularly friendly to outside researchers, um, although the, the Emory, which is where the Yerkes Laboratory is housed, their research librarian was fantastic and really helped advocate for me to see the films that I did see. That said, the Yerkes Laboratory, um, because that is where Frederick Wiseman filmed Primate, has dealt with uh, years of bad press, especially in relationship to film. And, and to that end, they are very skittish about letting anyone look at these films. And it took a, over a year of discussions for me to see the films that I saw. Um, my sense is not that they are that interested in preserving them, but I don't don't know, frankly, because I there's a lot of um, secrecy there, <laughs> basically, um, and that's kind of evocative of you know or indicative of the way that um, scientific films, maybe especially scientific films of animals, are generally treated, which is that there's a real range of approaches. Sometimes these are shelved in individual private laboratories that are sort of sealed off from the rest of the public or treated as like classified uh, materials that, you know, they don't want people to see in part because there's a, a, a the, the worry that it will rouse anger, uh, even though, the, again, these films are over 100 years old sometimes, right? But at the, at, but at, on the other hand, sometimes these are just objects that, that no one's thinking about. And it might just be in someone's attic or might be in a university archive. Um, you know, almost any university archive, if they've got a film collection, you're gonna find some of these films there. there and I really just scraped the surface in this book because there are you know, hundreds of these films out there, if not thousands. I mean, especially if we consider contemporary um, moving image media production from the sciences there, we're talking a huge amount of material out there and they exist in all of these disparate places. And so you have to kind of excavate uh, in order to, to find this work. It's not, there's not like a central hub uh, where you can search by animal or search by, by, um, by, by research. Um, so that, yeah. So, so in some ways um, the, the, and a lot of these films, even if they have great historical value, like I think that the Yerkes films are um, historically significant because they're the, the the first films made in a laboratory of a primate uh, being researched upon um, in the United States. Um, and yet, because of these conditions at, that are placed upon them, um, they are 
degrading and they are not valued and they're and most most of the public maybe doesn't even know they exist and i think you know that's one thing that you really advocate for in this text is that these research films were kind of i think you call them um interstitial like kind of these in between um just for the sake of like documenting something so between the idea and the eventual theory if one was developed um, but you're really saying hey we should look at these in their own right um and what we can really what we can really learn from them um i guess to kind of speak to some of that um institutional power and, and the way that mona's life intersects with it her daughter cuba is also mentioned in this text um, interesting her name is is cuba right um and this is the moment where you say, as you kind of take us back to the archive, where you see this footage, and just for a moment, as I understand, um, you see Cuba making you know, a direct look into the camera. And so can you take us to that moment? And, and you make connections, of course, with like Derrida and the gaze and the animal that therefore I am. So this is like a really critical moment of where the animal looks back. And a lot of that has to do with um, the way the film is produced, right? Because that's another discussion you get to at different parts. So we're actually getting a eye level view of Mona, or sorry, Cuba. Yeah, so this was a moment, again, in the archive when I'm watching these um, films, which had been digitized so that I could see them, um, where uh, Cuba, who had a very hard life, and um, and this is a it's a film about uh, that's the first film of a primate after giving birth in the laboratory. And um, and Cuba was written up by Yerkes and his um, team as being an example of a kind of cold mother or a, a failed failing mother uh, because she was indifferent to her child supposedly um and yet there was this moment where she looks back at the camera and there's a kind of baleful look and that moment to me was was um very evocative of what derrida describes when he he sees his cat and he suddenly there's this kind of complex recognition of both someone you could potentially empathize with and yet someone who's also quite alien from you. And so you're left spiraling, trying to, to grasp at this uh, complexity, which is a, a non-human point of view that can look back at you and see you. Um, and that the film somehow captured that and reproduced it. Now, what's so there's that. And I and I think that that many um, film scholars have written about this phenomenon. Uh, I think Annette Pick does. I think that uh, uh, Lippitt writes about this, Akira Lippitt, you know, this idea of the, the, the on screen animal that can kind of catalyze this uh, new encounter with with non-human animals that breaks free from anthropocentric or anthropomorphic frameworks. Um, but then I tried to continue to think through this. And one thing that you find in Yerke's writing is that he himself 
is very interested in film's capacity to confront you with another intelligence besides your own, a non-human intelligence, and for film's capacity to induce a kind of empathy between you and the, the, the animal subject. And so he often uses film in his research as a way of kind of getting out of the confines of scientific writing, of uh, quantification and measurement and a kind of dry language. So he'll say something like, you know, um, Mona clearly, hit, uh, or uh, Mona clearly does not care for her child. Let me show you a film of that because I can't measure that with a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of um, uh, meters and, and, and measurements, right? I can't give you those exact findings, but I can give you a film that will evoke a sense of empathy and feeling so that you will understand how she feels, right? So in a way, he's trying to operationalize uh, this empathetic capacity that film can induce, and often to very negative ends. I mean, I, I argue in that chapter that, you know, he's he's essentially um, using it to, to make an argument about, um, you know, gender and about race uh, that is incredibly destructive, right? So he, um, so for instance, in his speeches, he'll be like talking about how race and species are basically synonyms for one another. And then he'll say, but I can understand the, the, these different, um, different worldviews, these different kinds of minds. And let me demonstrate to you my understanding by showing you a film that will make you understand, too, that uh, that this is how the primate sees the world or this is how, um, you know, and extrapolating from that, this is how groups of people see the world, cultural groups, um, gendered groups, racialized groups. Right. So in in that way, this empathetic moment that I have with uh, Cuba also is a springboard for thinking about how empathy is being weaponized by Yerkes uh, in some ways. And it made that kind of contrast between this moment of empathy and fellow feeling and the structures around that moment um, really were important for me in terms of thinking beyond the encounter as the, um, the, the place where the politics happens. Uh, I, you know, and I think that that is one of the big interventions of the book is that I'm really trying to push us away from um, focusing solely on this moment of encounter between a human and a non-human. Because I think that that moment can mean lots of different things depending on the context in which it's happening in. And Yerkes is a perfect example of a, a place where, you know, what under other circumstances we would be championing, right? Uh, this moment of empathy between uh, a, a human and a non-human on screen, the use of film to kind of um, create this uh, more uh, complex and deep engagement with the, the non-human animal on screen. And yet within the institutional context that Yerkes is working in, this activity actually has these really negative 
political valences. I'm so glad that you touched on that. You actually kind of anticipated one of my other questions, which is how Gierke's is um, is thinking of empathy and is using it, um, especially within his kind of eugenicist framework. And it seems that, um, if I understand correctly, the target audience for his films were other psychologists. So it would be people basically who I think one goal is I can teach you how to have because you have this um, superior intellect um, colleague, um, I can teach you how to similarly see and empathize in a correct way or in a functional or research based way uh, with the primates on screen. So that is really fascinating because I think we often think of empathy and seeing the other as you were talking about as positive modes and that gets discussed a lot. Um, but I, I love this as kind of it opens up the space to reconsider sympathy and empathy in the context of looking at uh, looking at animals. So that was a really uh, a very complicated section. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, his his target audience is fellow scientists, um, uh, part of the scientific elite. And he's imagining this world where science um, creates a kind of empathetic manager um, who who manages society by understanding and empathizing with uh, humans and animals and then putting them to the best use within society. Uh, he, was, he was really against and in, in, against Taylorism and in some ways against behaviorism. He's a kind of outlier figure. He's in the early period where he's talking with behaviorists, but he's also talking with other kinds of uh, psychologists. And he thinks that behaviorism is sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, and so he wants to keep empathy and sympathy as part of the science, which later behaviorists would be um, squarely against. But at the same time, he still wants to keep management <laughs> and control uh, as as a kind of end goal, uh, a more well-managed, a more well-controlled society. And so he his films are really training viewers to look with this empathetic eugenicist's eyes and and measure and understand the world through that. Uh, that gaze, that kind of look, and they, and over and over again, the films kind of prompt viewers to to look and draw the same conclusions that he's drawn by uh, encountering these animals in the laboratory, and thereby kind of practice those skills of of looking, empathizing, and then um, higher creating a hierarchy based on that. Mm-hmm. And I guess, um, you know, beginning to transition to the second part of your book, one thing that I really took away from the the section on Yerkes in contrast to Miller specifically, is that Yerkes is really interested in um, like individual, like inborn traits of the individual. And then my understanding is that Neil Miller, who the second section is about, is more interested in um, like groups, so not necessarily the individual, but like more of the the social um, structures of things. And, and in a moment, I'm sure we'll get to the, this idea of he uses the rats as a model to kind of explain a lynch mob in the South. 
Um, so that's a that's a really interesting shift. So do you want to kind of give us a little introduction into Miller and, and this this part of the text? Yeah, sure. So Miller is working at um, Yale's Institute of Human Relations, which is this kind of um, academic institution that that springs up to try and deal with all of humanity in a holistic way, but but because there's this recognition that this is a huge topic, a very bloated topic in some ways, there's this idea that you need an institute, almost like a corporation to study it, rather than an individual scientist, right? And so it becomes this really interdisciplinary space where Miller and people like Miller, who are like these behavioral psycholo uh, psychologists, are working with people from anthropology, people from economics, um, people from other fields to try to understand human relations writ large, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, so there is this kind of really grand scope and this set of interdisciplinary uh, connections. And Miller works really closely with John Dollard, who's part of this um, Culture and Personality School of Anthropology, which largely um, grows out of um, Franz Boas's critique of Yerkes and his tests. So Boas, um, you know, for precisely the reasons you were describing, says, well, Yerkes is just interested in these kind of essentialist inborn differences. And he doesn't realize that he's projecting all of this with his own, you know, he's just projecting his own worldview onto these groups of people and just uh, assuming that that is a kind of inborn difference. Whereas the culture and personality school says, you know, who we are and how those differences arise comes from culture, not from nature, not from, and so it's nurture rather than nature. And so it, for them, the, the key um, process is this transformation from a kind of infant or a newborn who doesn't yet have a personality that's been defined by culture to a, an individual who, who has become a kind of uh, acculturated to their, their group. What does all that have to do with rats? Well, <laughs> it, this interesting framework comes up, uh, gets built by people like Miller, where they say, okay, let's map that onto rat experiments. And in this, in this, um, we'll map that process onto a, a rat experiment in which the experimental device, the box that you put them in, um, the levers that they pull, the food shoots, etc., will stand in for culture. And the rat as a kind of blank slate, you know, the laboratory rat, they're all the same, they're all replaced, they can replace each other, will um, we'll stand in for the, the newborn. And we'll see how different identities uh, arise out of these different cultural circumstances. So there's a really interesting and kind of um, this extrapolative thing that they're doing where they, they're saying, you know, uh, a rat pushing the, the levers <laughs> Uh, can tell us about how humans become um, cu cultured individuals, how differences arise um, because of culture. 
I think we should add maybe for listeners that you include um, excerpts or in some cases, I think the full full film um, that you can watch as you read the book. And that's incredibly interesting. Um, you know, each one that you that's included, I was just like, oh, my goodness, it, it really does. <laughs> because I've never seen anything like it because it's just it's just wild. And so like with the, the rat example, it begins like one of the videos you include with just, you know, you have a rat that's hungry and then you have a rat that's not hungry and those are labeled on two individual <laughs> different um like boxes or areas and it begins you know the rat is figuring out how to get the food and the one that's satiated isn't so interested and then it starts escalating in terms of you know using um shock to motivate uh the rat that's satiated um and, and then there's the whole, the rat has to figure out how to turn off the shock by using a wheel. And then it goes to where, um, I think they're even prompted to fight each other to get food or to fight each other to get the shock. So it just, it, it begins in something kind of relatively benign all the way to, I'm sure that they probably killed each other in some of these instances, right? Potentially, I don't know. They don't show that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that they did that much damage to each other, but I, but they are clearly in pain, and they're, and they're being trained to, again, this is dark stuff, but they're being trained to um, fight each other in order to turn off the shock. Um, uh, yeah, and you know, it's interesting because again, in these films, and one of the things that um, the that Miller says is like, film is great because you will always have the response that you want to have because you could if you if you have the wrong response if the rat does the wrong thing you can always cut it out uh right so so you have these kind of idealized abstract rats but in the writing you also like many of these scientists that were working with rats you know do admit that like these experiments have pretty traumatic effects on the rats and and don't just it's not like then they can just restart uh you know these these rats actually do have individual personalities that are deeply affected by uh the experiments that are being run on them and yet you wouldn't really get a sense of that by watching the films because it's so it's such a sanitized um and tightly controlled uh uh, uh cinematic framework that they're giving which is again also quite different from Yerkes, right? Yerkes has these long takes where he just invites uh, the the spectator to to think about what the animal is feeling at any point. But these rat films are very highly edited, and each moment where we are supposed to um, understand what the why the rat is motivated to do what it's doing is is very tightly controlled, so that um, we're 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 given a very specific prompt. Okay, the rat is hungry. It's looking for food, and that's how we explain what we see on screen. But that's not. It, it's much more complicated, much more loose in in Yerkes films. And so that that's a great point too. Like he, it's very um, he uses editing. <laughs> very, very carefully. Um, the inclusion of text, like you were saying, there are these cards that explain, and now the hungry rat does this, so it kind of introduces what's coming next. Um, and then I think the discussion also happens, and you do a great job in your kind of visual analysis of this. Um, in some experiments, we see the rat like taking up the whole screen, like kind of, you know, 
I forget the way for that, but like eye to eye in a way like you could just like you're looking in a room right at the rat and others you're getting more of an aerial perspective. Um, and so you want to say a little bit more about not just editing, but use of perspective um, in some of these rat experiments, because they're small enough, I guess, to be able to to play with that more. Yeah, yeah. And these are, you know, highly produced films, if you could say that for, for a scientific uh, film about rat experiments. But I mean, you know, the, it, if you look at the images, they, they, they take place in these matte black backgrounds, hot, brightly lit. Um, so this is like a kind of artificial space that is created for us to engage with these um, animals. And and there's a really interesting interplay between treating them as kind of cogs or in a machine or, or kind of like uh, things that will just automatically respond like a machine. When you switch a lever, it'll do this. If you switch a lever, it'll do that um, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there is a real interest in motivation in these films. And so there are a lot of... Um, otherwise unexplained close-ups of the rats faces that seem to be inviting us to uh think about motivation right um and, and you know it's right there in in the name of miller's film motivation and reward in learning um and so there we're, we're, we're supposed to be thinking about kind of um psychological processes the feelings of certain kind of psychological experiences and how those things are Control, controlled or conditioned by the surroundings around us. So we're thinking both inside and outside. Um, and the, I, I mean, I won't get too far down this road, but this comes through this really strange combination of Freud and Pavlov that the, uh, that the, that Miller and his peers were working off of where they were trying to use Freudian language to describe Pavlovian experiments. At some um, point, does Miller describe that as like the the slender bridge? I think you cite that between kind of, and again, we talked earlier, right, about like fantasy, and there's something that this is still working in a, a scientific realm, um, but there is something really kind of fantastic and uh, like sci-fi and otherworldly about what's what's happening. Um, and I think that's, that's an interesting moment, and, and you kind of do this comparative reading of a film that Miller was quite upset by, and I think I'm going to mispronounce it. So it, it starts with an I. It, um, Ingagi and. In... Oh, Ingagi. No, Ingagi. Okay. Yeah, this is, that's Yerkes who's really upset. Oh, by okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm jumping, jumping back. Um, but again, kind of these like uh, where and you and you say just jumping back really quickly to Yerkes that this film that is clearly like people in gorilla suits, um, blackface, like obviously um, artificial in its own way, um, is you know existing in the same world and is a similar colonial product of what we see with you know Yerkes beliefs um but to get back <laughs> to Miller and Dollard um this this reading that you give of um Dollard I think especially writing about the the lynch mob and again it's an it's an anonymous um do we even know the location who the victim was um which is interesting as well right we have whiteness we have these white rats who are manufactured you know for the purpose of um, reproducing these experiments um can you say a little bit about the um the experiments with the rats in conversation with this lynching 
Yes, and this was another one of those moments that was just utterly confounding to me when I first came to it, you know, like, uh, so in their book, um, Yerkes and, and Miller, I'm sorry, not Yerkes, uh, Miller and Dollard uh, compare the their findings from the rat experiments to a whole bunch of different social circumstances and use the kind of language and the, the, the findings from the rat experiments to explain those uh, social circumstances. But one of the central set pieces of this is a lynching in um, an anonymized Southern town of a young black man uh, for supposedly uh, having relations with a white woman. And this lynching is described in incredible graphic detail and and, and all of its sadism is, is put on full display. And then there's this pivot uh, to simplifying it down to these responses that rats were having when they were being shocked as a group. What's interesting, I mean, there's a lot that's interesting there, but one of the things that stood out to me was that it was not the black people in the incident that were being compared to the animals, but rather the white people. And <clears throat> to me, and, and, and Dollard is quite clear that he is seeking some reason <laughs> behind the lynching. And he himself even mentions that, you know, he, he felt an urge to join when he saw a lynch mob once in his research, which is, which he him, he's upset by and, and, and sort of revulsed by. And so he's trying to find some explanation for where this comes from. And in this instance, he kind of goes to this experimental laboratory science as a space for giving him concrete reasons where this, um, behavior, a behavior that he himself felt implicated in, uh, uh, arises out of. And, you know, it, it's it's a very interesting moment because I, I think it's one where we see that whiteness and whiteness's violence can actually be justified by animalizing whiteness and white people. And we often think of you know, the human animal divide as being solely about animalizing people of color, women, queer people, right? Uh, indigenous people, of making them on the non-human side of the human animal equation. But in this instance, we actually see uh, the opposite is true, that whiteness can be given an alibi if it is animalized, right? It can be said, ah, well, there's these, you know, these animal reasons <laughs> that we behave, behave the way we do. And, you know, they're, they're like, a, it's like a, you wind up a clock and it, and it, and it starts going, right. It starts ticking. And that, and this attempt to um, explain, and one might say, explain away racism uh, and white violence as part of a kind of just animal behavior, I think is really, um, pernicious and dangerous, and also um, puts the lie to certain ideas about the relationship between whiteness and, and humanness. 
um, because I think that, you know, I've, I've kind of distilled it down for myself is white supremacy does not need human exceptionalism to continue operating and, and, and can actually operate in a post-human framework or operate in a, in a, uh, a post-human world. And I think we see that all the time around us today. Um, so again, I just, you know, what this brought me to was a, a feeling that we needed to really reevaluate the relationship between whiteness and animality, because I don't think it's quite as simple uh, or streamlined as it is often described as. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for um walking us through that. Um, yeah, it was a really fascinating moment because like you're saying, there's there's a lot of great research that you cite and that you that you do yourself about this comparison between otherness and animality. Um, but here that's like inverted in a really striking way. Um, so thank you for, for talking us through that. Um, I think uh, as a last thing in this particular section, just like we talked about empathy with Yerkes, you highlight something in the section with Miller about shared suffering, um, and you and you include some other people. But it's this really interesting moment, um, and as I read it, where in some cases it's the experimenter is projecting their suffering onto their experimental subjects. Um, and then you also cite, I think it's a documentary film from 2016 where. The, the filmmaker makes this deliberate parallel between the suffering of um, rats and um, different city planning and racial divisions in Baltimore. So do you want to maybe talk through some of those different nodes of the shared suffering that you touch on? Sure. So shared suffering is this concept that um, Donna Haraway describes um, in When Species Meet. It's her way of dealing with the kind of comp complex, messy motivations and affects of the animal research lab um, and and trying to think through the ways in which the laboratory scientist and the animal have this kind of, um, they both are suffering. (laughs) It's not just one directional where the, the, the laboratory scientist causes suffering in the animal but also that there is an affective suffering that that must take place, uh, a kind of shearing off of parts of yourself in order to become a kind of, um, to, to, to enact that violence, um, which I think is, is very interesting. And, but I also wanted to find a way to think through, especially in instances like this, the suffering of people who, Sometimes the findings from this scientific lab uh, are then applied and used that when the when when the the rat experiment, which is full of suffering, is then applied as a model for uh, the behavior of groups of people who then have to suffer through <laughs> that uh, that that those circumstances. There's a shared suffering there as well. And so trying to expand the scope of the analysis beyond an individual scientist and, a, and an animal to think again about these systems that, sh- that distribute the suffering <laughs> uh, through the kind of application of findings um, in, in, in instances like in rat film um, where, you know, again, it's about John B. Calhoun's rat experiments where 
uh, where the, the 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 studying of rats was then used to uh, plan the city of Baltimore, <laughs> or was you know used to as a kind of um, uh, a building block for understanding how you should plan a city like Baltimore. And so in that instance, I I think there's a connection. They're not the same, and I wouldn't want to equate these kinds of suffering. But there is this kind of way in which the the, the actions of the lab, I believe, need to be tied to and connected to the application of the findings that come out of that lab. Um, and and again, this goes all the way back to the introduction of the book, where you know one of the things that I criticize in that pick four is her reading of primate. I'm not. I'm not even sure. I'm criticizing her as much as I. Uh, she reads primate as uh, a film that allows us to encounter directly animals in the laboratory because they shear away. Because Wiseman shears away the the scientific contexts in which these laboratory uh, experiments are being performed in, and yet for me those scientific contexts are so important for understanding the politics of the lab as a space and, and knowing where these experiments, what they're geared towards doing, uh, I think is really essential. And it's essential for understanding the ways in which um, scientific and animal research is used as a tool of power against um, racialized communities. But it's also... Uh, essential for us to think through these naughty relationships between animals and human oppression, right? Which are are far too often a kind of, uh, I feel like papered over or, or made um, sort of synonymous in ways that are unhelpful. Um, I don't know if that was a, a legible answer, but yeah. No, that was wonderful. And I think we talked a little bit about for uh, Yerkes, his maybe target audience was his peers. Um, but then with Miller and these films, it, I think this, I, this emergence, if I understood correctly, of the educational animal film. So that becomes even more, like you said, the word pernicious. I like that. Um, you think about this as being used to educate people about systems of the world. So it can be like not, I mean, endlessly replicated to the extent of who, what the students that it's shown to and the way that it it's foundational to their knowledge set and their perspective. Um, and in turn, how they live their lives and hire people and build their houses and participate in government and, <laughs> and so on and so on. So um, yeah, that can be a spiral <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's also, again, this moment in the in the mid 20th century when behaviorism is on the rise and it's as a as a field is becoming this way of explaining everything, <laughs> you know, it becomes. And so it's like, yeah, the classroom. Sure. It's just like a laboratory, uh, you know, a lynch mob. Yeah, it's just like a laboratory experiment. Any sit, a, a movie theater. It's just like a laboratory <laughs> experiment, right? And so the the behaviorists are making these comparisons all the time. And in making these comparisons, they're trying to make these spaces out there in the world more like their laboratory experimental settings. So the classroom should be controlled in the way that the, the experimental apparatus is controlled. 
Um, you know, the, the the movie theater should be controlled the way that the, the the experimental apparatus is controlled. And in each of these instances, there's this kind of um, there's this this shape shifting that's happening or terraforming that's happening where the laboratory, as it as it becomes a metaphor for understanding all of these other places, also is literally transforming those spaces by by implying certain ways in which they should be kind of physically rearranged or or transformed or different practices that should be taking place there so it, there's a really interesting and complicated relationship between the laboratory where these films are being made and the various places where these films are being shown uh, in order to explain, say, the actions of the classroom. And um, I, I definitely want to make sure we get to Skinner. But before we we move that direction, I do want to highlight something that you that you write in the book. And that's, I think, during an instance of showing one of these rat films to a classroom, you're smiling because I think you know where I'm going. Uh, the students start laughing and Miller is like, why are they laughing? It was so, un, you know, think I'm going to show them this film. I can probably predict their response. But then that was a moment where um, it, yeah, it just it, it caught him off guard. So um, this 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 yearning for control, um, and even how the students' laughter is a really interesting like unexpected intervention there. And then he restructures right the films to help um, better control the the type of audience response. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that I, again, like, I think this has a very you know as a book, this is very much about the. Um, structures of power and the application of power um, in order to control animals and humans. And yet I also really wanted to keep an eye out for those moments of rupture where, you know, the animals refuse to behave, uh, the humans be refuse to behave, and they're they're littered throughout this history. I mean, it's it, this is as much a history of failure as it is a history of success. Um, and it's important to keep an eye on those failures as much as they try to kind of write them out of the experiments often. Uh, another tidbit I love from this segment was just that uh, one of the most common responses the rats were giving in 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 some of these experiments, was which uh, a response that was totally cut out of the films was that they tried to escape the the experiment uh, they tried to jump out of the box right and 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 so but that of course does not make it into the film because it's sort of besides the point of the of the research and yet all throughout this kind of every step of these these attempts to control humans and animals there are these moments where you know the rat tries to escape <laughs> the the humans just laugh. This is absurd, right? This kind of explosion of beyond that 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 precise notion of control and modeling. Yes. <laughs> I know there were just many moments thinking about like, what if we had seen the rat trying to escape? That's really interesting. Um, <laughs> so let's go now to B.F. Skinner. Um, Project Pigeon, his critique of film. We talked a little bit about how I think Miller is really interested in what film can do. And I think you're saying like progressive era politics in general is kind of curious about the film as a propaganda tool and, and helping people, you know, become better citizens or understand the American dream. Um, but Skinner is this fascinating case. Uh, it's kind of like you end on a bang. This pigeon experiment is something that doesn't even seem like it really happened, but it did. Um, and so please, please introduce us to Skinner in this section. Well, Skinner's the big name. Obviously, he's the most well known. I mean, 
often cited as one of the most important psychologists of all time, certainly of the 20th century, um, and yet also is sort of a, a, just such an odd figure and is an outlier in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, my my focus on Skinner is, is his theory of radical behaviorism, which was this idea that um, unlike Miller, who who thought of behaviorism as a form of modeling, where you make a film in order to kind of model a, a, a concept that can be applied in various circumstances, whether it's the classroom or the, the laboratory, et cetera. But um, Skinner wants to do away with even that level of kind of abstraction. He just thinks of behavior as something that responds to the context it is given. And, and he's very materialist in that way. He, he just, you know, it's not about some abstract concept that's playing out. It's just about how different organisms interact with the world around them. And so he, and because of this, he has a really interesting approach to film where he sees it as, as part of our symbolic surroundings that controls us and, and that gets responses out of us. And so he's quite critical of film as like a, a tool for revealing anything in the lab. He never uses film as like a way of, of revealing an important behavior or something like that. Um, but he does use film as a kind of prompt to make scientists and viewers uh, uh, behave in certain ways. And he also uses film as a, as, a, as a way of controlling the behavior of his pigeons. So the experiment that I think you're talking about is Project Pigeon, which is, you know, where he basically trained pigeons to, uh, during World War II, trained pigeons to guide a missile uh, towards images of boats with the idea that these pigeons would be planted inside of a bomb and then by pecking a screen or by pecking an image that, the, that would they would be seeing basically a camera obscura where they would be seeing through the nose of the bomb and they would be pecking the image they saw and through a system of electronic relays they'd then be controlling the movement of the bomb they would direct these bombs to uh, enemy ships. And so it was this idea of a kind of a guided missile that was being guided by pigeons. Um, and there he's, he used the moving image to train the pigeons uh, in it, to do this, to peck the, the, the screen, um, uh, to peck the image of the boat. And it's also interesting, he used, then he filmed this process and use those films to convince the generals uh, <laughs> in the army to, to fund this project. And uh, there's a really revealing moment where he says, you know, one, they, they were all on board, but the, the project finally collapsed when they actually saw the real pigeons doing it because the films were really convincing. But, but when they had the real pigeon in front of them, they were like, this is ridiculous. Uh, what are we thinking, right? So again, he's seeing film as this tool for control, a, a way of influencing people, um, and people and animals, right? His pigeons, the generals, sure, we're all just organisms responding to our environment. Um, and film can be a part of that 
uh, stimulus uh, in the in, in the environment. Um, and I think you used the word absurd earlier. Um, I forgot the context, but it just put it in my head. He did another experiment with his students, and I forgot the name of it, but it was the pigeon with the banana and the box. And and I think you write that the purpose of that experiment was never known, really, other than to prove that it was absurd. Or like, I don't want to say anything that's wrong. Help me out. <laughs> it's the, the Columbian experiment. Um, I, I think I'm pronouncing that right, but it, it was basically, so there's, um, a response to exactly the kind of filmmaking that Robert Yerkes was doing. So there's, um, and, and in particular, uh, there's this set of very famous films made by Kohler, um, of, of these chimpanzees who seem to be inventing new tools in order to reach a banana that's been hung up in their cage. And this film was shown and excerpts of the film, like, like stills from the film are in Kohler's book. Uh, the film was you know, distributed and shown as evidence of the ideational capacity of chimpanzees, their capacity to think through a problem, to be inspired, to come up with a new new idea or new technology. Skinner, absolutely um, does not believe film can show this. <laughs> and so he sets out to kind of debunk it by creating an absurd film that will seem to show the same thing, but with a pigeon. So in, in Skinner's remake of this original primate film, the you see a pigeon who is in a little box and there's a toy banana hung up in the box and the pigeon is trying to decide how can I reach it? And again, you see all the same behaviors that you saw in the chimpanzee. The pigeon looks up, is trying to think about it. It seems, it seems to be thinking about it, um, looks back and forth, notices a little toy box in the, the space and then moves the toy box underneath the, um, the banana, steps on top of the box and pecks the banana. And so when you look at it without critically thinking about it, it, it seems like you're seeing the pigeon behave in the same way that the, uh, the primate was and therefore, you know, show this kind of innovation, um, you know, critical thinking, all of that. And yet, when you think about it for two seconds longer, you realize this is absurd. Why would a why would a pigeon even want a toy banana? Why wouldn't it fly? Why wouldn't it? You know, so clearly there's something else happening here that I don't understand. There's some other thing that is motivating this behavior. And I can't understand the behavior by just looking at this film. Right. And so there it becomes a kind of self-reflexive work of media criticism in a way that Skinner is engaged in because he's he's trying to debunk how these earlier films were being used right by saying like look i could do the same thing with a pigeon but i but but you won't come to those same conclusions right because it that's that 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 would be patently absurd in this case to to assume that the pigeon is um inventing a new way of getting up to the banana if for no other reason than like why would why would a pigeon want to do that um so again it really highlighting all the off-screen space, all the training that happened beforehand 
um, all the, the the conditions that led the pigeon to behave that way, which suddenly become very apparent when you watch that, you know, Skinner's film and think about it for a little bit. Um, I so to kind of near the the end of your the book, um, you do have in the conclusion the pigeon as a figure of our times. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit about that, and I'd also like to hear a bit about echolocation and how you're using that as a way that we in our current moment can call back to the ghosts of you know Mona and Cuba and the rats and the pigeons um, and how we can locate ourselves in the in the current moment in, in different ways by looking at these cellulose specimens definitely um, so one one aspect here is just that Skinner explicitly saw his pigeons as political metaphors or symbols. And he himself was, um, you know, despite working for the, the military and um, often his ideas are being applied in really draconian ways, like in prisons and asylums. Um, he himself was a kind of um, utopian anarchist, uh, although he didn't live his life that way <laughs> at all. But he, but he imagines he imagines a society where behaviorism leads to the abolition of basically government and where just through a system of rewards, you no longer need to punish anyone in society and capital and, and no longer becomes the driving force of society. So he's sort of an anti-capitalist too. Um, but, and, Obviously, these were kind of radical ideas. <laughs> and he, when he tried to advocate for them, he usually brought his pigeon along as this kind of symbol, uh, a demonstration of the possibilities of this behavioral, psychology, radical behaviorism and the way that it could dramatically change behavior um, through a rearrangement of you know, a system of rewards. Um, and, and so one of the things I, I, I study is this moment in the, in especially the 70s, but, but you know, the latter, latter quarter of the 20th century, um, where his work is being debated by everybody. And it's all about, what does this pigeon mean? <laughs> what does it mean that this pigeon can, can be made to do these other things, can change its behavior? Is this a sign of a kind of fascism, a fascist society? Is Skinner himself a fascist? Many people accused him of that. Um, or is it a, a, what, what, what Skinner thought, which is that like a kind of utopian image of like, you know, if we can change the behavior of the pigeon without punishment, without con a, a kind of um, uh, without the shocks, the electric shocks of, of that happened with the rat. Couldn't we do the same to our own behavior in a way that could lead to a better world? Uh, so there becomes this really um, incredible debate about about that. Now, Skinner kind of the, the the legacy of Skinner, he kind of gets laughed off the stage a little bit, and even though his um, ideas are constantly being put into place. To this day, he himself is in some ways no longer 
discussed seriously anymore, and, and neither are those pigeons. Um, they're seen often or described often as a kind of perfect example of scientific overreach, right? Like that he just didn't, under, he was trying to do something with his pigeons through these political aspirations that scientists shouldn't do. And therefore we've kind of left the whole debate about the pigeon behind um, and what it means. But my final claim in the conclusion of the book is that, you know, really these pigeons, but also the rats, but also the, um, the, the, the primates, that the, the, the findings that were built out of these experiments have a huge impact on the world around us today. Um, that, you know, these behavioral um, concepts, language, technologies, are all integrated into massive institutions that can have a huge effect on our lives, whether that's immigration, education, policing, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the criminal justice system, like all of these ideas of, or, and, and I can't forget, of course, also um, algorithms, right? This notion of the algorithm and, and its ability to kind of predict your outcome, outcomes of human behavior or predict what you will like next. All of that is couched in the, the language and findings of behaviorism. And yet we've left the animals to the kind of dustbin of history. And my claim is that these should be thought of as political um, figures in a way. And that if we debate them the way that Skinner was kind of trying to prompt us to, um, we might start to learn more and more about our own uh, condition in in these highly controlled spaces. Um, so this leads me to uh, employing one of the behaviorists' kind of main techniques, which is this idea of echo, uh, which is this technique of sort of. Um, taking an animal behavior and extrapolating <laughs> wildly from it. Uh, and so I, I sort of maybe a little facetiously tried to do that with uh, this notion of echolocation. Um, and, I, and I'm using Joan Scott's notion of the fantasy echo, uh, where she kind of famously argues that um, historians, especially feminist historians, are kind of like asking questions of the past that have to do with the, their present and all they hear back is a reflection of their own voice um, and not really what, what happened in the past. Um, but then I sort of, again, playfully say, well, uh, an echo has to bounce off of something. And, and, and echoes can be a good uh, way of locating yourself. If you're if you've got the right ears, uh, right, if you've got the right senses. And so there's a way of asking the questions that are um, crucial for us today about immigration, about race in America, about uh, the institution, these massive institutions that claim to be able to predict and control our behavior, um, that we can ask those vital questions about our contemporary world to these objects in the past, and they will help us uh, locate ourselves as well um, by paying close attention to the lives of these animals. We can glean important knowledge, important understanding, important findings about where we are today. Um, so that's where I, 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 I propose this concept. 
Thank you so much. That was such a fantastic answer. Um, is there, what are you currently working on? Are you continuing? Are you, are, where are you echolocating at the moment? Um, well, I have a lot of smaller projects um, that I'm working on. I have a, I'm, I'm co-editing a couple um, uh, things that I'm very excited about, uh, a, a, an issue of um, the Journal of Environmental Media on what we're describing as cynozoonosis, which is the, the portrayal of zoonotic diseases, obviously a hot button issue these days with um, the coronavirus uh, and the kind of history and theorization of, of zoonosis and its representation on screen. Um, so that should be coming out, I think, in the winter, which I'm excited about. And I also have am co-editing um, an in focus for the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies on the overlap between science fiction and documentary, um, which is also kind of informing, comes out of the, this book and me trying to th pay attention to those kind of fantasy elements in the science and in the documenting uh, practice. Um, but then I also am working on a second book manuscript um, that will focus on contemporary documentary and uh, especially what I'm calling multi-species documentaries, which are, you know, these um, these films like Leviathan or Nanette or Cow or Gunta that try to position you within a non-human sensorium. And I'm trying to historicize this genre as um, a politically contested one, um, one that emerges out of our anxieties around the sixth grade extinction. Um, and one that is more, um, uh, that is symptomatic, I'm doing a symptomatic reading uh, of these films as kind of um, telling us something about where our society is now and where we're going. And a lot of this is building off of that notion that, uh, again, white supremacy uh, can outlast humanism um, and, and trying to think about, you know, what would a white supremacist posthumanism look like? Does all forms of posthumanism imply a kind of pro progressive or liberatory politics, or are there where are the political fault lines within these various relationships with the with the animal on screen? Um, and so, trying to think through those complicated questions with a set of um, films from our contemporary moment, um, which I think is again like. This is a moment of massive upheaval and change, and uh, especially around our relationship to animals and nature. So trying to kind of predict, maybe not predict, but but imagine where we're going. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I look forward to each of those things and more that you mentioned. Um, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really wonderful to talk with you. Thank you. Take care.